0: We're kind of setting aside the teaching on prayer for a little while. This is related to prayer. But I've just felt impressed over the last week to go back to something we've talked about several years ago, but from a little different angle. This is, we just won't stay here very long, I don't believe, but this is uh, an account of the Apostle Paul, uh, of his saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus. It's a church that was founded by him. It's a church that's located... Uh, located in Asia, what was then Asia Minor, which would be Turkey today. And it's a church that Paul poured his heart into, and the most important books we have in the New Testament, one of my favorite books, is the book of Ephesians. It's a letter written to this church. But um, I want to start by his saying goodbye to the elders. And Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem after his third and final missionary journey. And he knows, because it says later on in here, he knows that, that chains await him in Jerusalem because the Spirit of God testifies all the way back that he's about to go through a difficult time. But it wasn't a shock because Jesus told him when he first appeared to him in Damascus that he must show him the things that he was going to go through for him, for his sake. And so Paul is now meeting with the elders of Ephesus. He's at, a, at the, at the uh, coastal town, and he's called for the elders to come visit him while, so he can say goodbye to him. And we're going to just pick up um, uh, in verse 20 here where Paul says, he talks about uh, how he served them and how he didn't ask. Uh, he, he served them without, uh, without regard to finances. He just poured himself into them. Uh, says he served them in verse 19 with humility. Uh, and now verse 20 says, Now I'm, I keep back nothing that was helpful, but I cr- proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. This is what he did for them before. Testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. See now I go bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and ministry, the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Now go over, because he said in verse 27, I have not shunned that responsibility. Now his parting words to them, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which is the believers in Ephesus, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, he's talking to the leadership of the church, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now he's not talking about four-legged wolves. He's talking about two-legged wolves. He's talking about spiritual enemies that will come in to try to devour the church. While Paul was there, his anointing and his presence helped keep some things out. But when he moved on, he was aware, he was sensitive and aware that Satan was still out there and his desire was to destroy this church. And in fact, he eventually did. And Paul's warning them, ahead of time about what was going to happen. He said, There are ravenous wolves after my departure. Savage wolves will come in among you. And, of course, the image here is you have a flock of sheep. And, you know, the Bible Us, refers to believers as sheep. That's because we've always got our head in the food. <laughs> and we're always, you know, we're easily led. And that's what sheep are easily led or misled. And, and in order to lead sheep... A shepherd has to be among them and know them and they have to come to know the shepherd so that a trust is developed so that they'll follow the shepherd where he goes. Cowboys don't live among the cattle. They live in a separate place and they cordon the cattle off on a cattle drive and they drive the cattle from behind. Why? Because cattle are not led, they're driven. But sheep have to be Led. And the Bible uses in the New Testament especially, but also in the Old Testament, it uses the image of sheep as an example of what we are, we are in God's sight. And a shepherd is someone that's placed among them to protect them. But a wolf is the enemy of the sheep. A wolf comes in to see what that wolf can devour of the sheep. Why? Because they're easy prey. A wolf doesn't go among a, a, a den of lions and try to devour them. A uh, wolf and it is basically a coward. He's going to go where it's easiest and where they're, where they're easily misled and you get some sheep that have kind of wandered off or been led off by the smell of something and then that Wolf is going to look for the ones that's easy to pick off. This is why it is so important, and I know you're here tonight, so you know that. This is why the Bible says it is so important to not forsake our assembling together. We have all kinds of means to watch television, to watch even stuff from here. We can watch it on YouTube. We can watch it on the on the on the. We can go to the website. We can go to Channel 12 on Sunday and watch it on you know on 11 o'clock and watch the services here. We can do all that, but that's not assembling together because when we assemble together, there's strength that we draw from one another. When we assemble together, there's a binding together, and it makes it more difficult for the enemy to single you out. But if you're out there on your own, you're like a sheep that's out grazing on his own, you're grazing, you may be getting it on TV, you may be getting it through your podcasts and things like that, but if that's your main sustenance, then you're out eating food on your own and you're not you are are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy and not even know it until it's too late this is why it says in Hebrews that it's not to forsake the assembling together, even all the more as you see that day of the Lord's coming, approaching and I believe it's getting closer and closer. and Certainly the signs of the time would tend to lead us that way. Not only that, though, look at this. But also, verse 30, from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night With tears, So now I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. So He's saying, I poured myself into you, I prayed for you, and now the one thing I'm leaving with you that you have as a resource is the word of grace that will keep you and will protect you. So let's turn to that word of grace. Let's go and look now at the letter that we have that Paul wrote to this church, the book of, Ephesus, book of Ephesians. And, we're, and, and it's, it, it, is, it contains the complete gospel I've shared with you before. If I could only have one, one book of the Bible, if I could only have one book, it would be this book. Romans is my favorite, but this is, has the complete gospel in it. But We're going to go to verse 10. Having said all the instructions, told them who they are, brought some correction to them, he now gives them a final instruction which I believe relates back to what he told the elders when he saw them last. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age against a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. I have talked to a number of people over the last weeks and months, including ministers, and I have heard this consistent theme. I've felt it from people in here, and I've even had to wrestle with it in my own life at times a sense of this downward pull, a sense of, 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 of weightiness, a sense of discouragement, trying to work its way into people's lives. And you look at the... just All you have to do is look at the news long enough and you'll get that. I mean, if it's not ISIS just planning out how to wipe out everyone that's not a Muslim, then it's a disease you can't see, Ebola, that's trying to creep itself into this nation. So it's trying to get us from it out, from within. I mean, you know, everywhere you turn around, that's why you can't spend too much watching the news. You just can't spend too much watching the news and then wonder why you panic like the world does. You understand what the news services are doing? It's a business and they're selling a product. Now, I'm not saying be ignorant of what's going on. I'm not saying you should never watch the news. But when we watch it over and over and over again, I mean, when I grew up, the news was on the radio. It was a newspaper. Everybody had the newspaper in the morning and newspaper at night. Boy, that does date me. And then it came on television, but it came on once a day. It was like at 6 o'clock for half an hour, and it was on three channels, and they basically all said the same thing, and you know, there were commercials in between, and you know, you saw Huntley and you saw Brinkley talking to each other, and you know, and, and it was nice, and then, you know, it was gone. But nowadays, it's 24 hours. I mean, I woke up this morning, and there are things on my phone that have come up during the night warning me that this guy died, and this has happened, and somebody won the Nobel Prize, and all this stuff. It's coming at us from all over, and you have to manage that information. You have to manage that information because they're trying to sell it to you. They want you to watch their channel, their station. Because if you notice in the middle of all that, there are commercials. So, you know, whatever soap company and whatever, you know, dishwashing detergent and mouthwash and that, that, that new miracle drug that they spend half the time telling you all the side effects and why you shouldn't take the drug they're trying to tell you to take... And all that stuff is is buried in among the news. why? because they're selling it it's a business, and you and I are the consumers, but unlike other things, I mean I can watch those commercials about you know these drugs because i don't have that disease and I'm, I'm not tempted to go out and try it out or buy it, but when it's news it's it, 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 it attracts. It attracts our, the fallen part of us, which is our flesh, which, is, which has part of us, wants to hear something bad. You notice that the news is never good news. This, this is the good news right here. This is the good news. It, because good news doesn't sell. Why? Because of our flesh wants to hear bad stuff. We want to know what's going on in somebody else's life, while they're messed up, because that makes us feel good about ourselves. There's just a curiosity about things that are bad and evil. It sucks us in in our flesh. And we just sit there like... And just soaking it all up. So while they're talking about it, now they've got these banners that go... But it's fun, funny to watch them sometimes. I don't know why I'm off on this. They've got, they're telling you, and while this expert is telling you this, somebody's typing below it, his interpretation of it while it's going on. And every once in a while they get it wrong of what he just said. But they don't go back and correct that. My point is you're, we're inundated with it. We're inundated with it. And here's the problem. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now, faith in God comes by hearing the Word of God, but faith in the devil comes by hearing His news. And basically what's on Fox and CNN and MSNBC and all the rest of those news networks is basically the devil's news. It's what he's doing. And if you start thinking of it in those terms, it's now not quite so attractive. Again, I'm not saying be ignorant, but manage what you're watching. Manage what you're listening, and then check yourself. Is this really helping me? Is this really helping me. I want to talk to you tonight and maybe over the next, definitely over the next few nights, except for Wednesday nights, on spiritual warfare. Because we're in it. We're in it. The devil knows his time is short. And so he's increasing activity And if you're alive as a Christian and breathing, you're somehow in spiritual warfare. And if you don't think you are, then you probably are losing. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about it. There are all kinds of ideas and teachings out there. And the first thing I want to look at when you're in a spiritual war is you've got to recognize that you're in a spiritual war. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We'll talk about that later on. Why? Put on the whole armor of God. We taught that a couple of years ago. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And this is what I want you to see here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of darkness of this age. And, uh, in heavenly, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand, to stand. All right. So the first thing we've got to recognize, the first thing to learn, is that you are, we are in a war. Now, I, I enjoy studying history. I don't spend a lot of time on it anymore because I can get really lost in it. But there are very valuable lessons that we can learn from history. There's an old expression, I don't remember who said it, some of you may remember, that, that, that those that don't, that don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And there's a lot of truth in that. One of the things that's been very po- common, popular to, to talk about in this year, because this year uh, was the 100th anniversary. Of the beginning of World War I, which was called the war to end all wars, and of course we know now, looking back at the rest of the 20th century, that it wasn't the war to end all wars because there was another war, several other wars that came after it. It was the first world war. Before that, you would have nations fighting against nations. You might have uh, a lot of times in the it was England fighting against France and different combinations of those, and then of course you would have nations that would go over and try to conquer other nations. But by and large, all all warfare and there were, I'm sure, some exceptions, but by and large, all large warfare was fought by professional soldiers on battlefields, and essentially the civilians didn't get involved. Now, obviously, there were, there were some exceptions. The Revolutionary War over here were, were, but basically fought on battlefields. There were very few of them really fought in cities or towns and although the British soldiers were professional soldiers, so it didn't affect directly the British citizens except that their taxes were increased to pay for it, but they were not directly involved other than having sons or family involved as soldiers. And even the the American army, it started as a militia, but eventually formed a full-time professional army and then hired uh, we hired uh, some troops from France to come over to help us. But the point is this. Until World War I, the major wars that were fought were fought by professional soldiers on battlefields outside of the homes and the general residences of the people. So although they were aware that there was a war going on, it didn't directly involve people that weren't trained and prepared for battle. World War I changed that because it brought the war from the battlefield into the cities. And once the war went from the battlefields into the cities, the civilians, who didn't sign up to be soldiers, who had not gone through basic training, that included the men, the children, the women, the babies, and all their belongings, they were now involved in a war they didn't ask for. They were now involved in a war they weren't trained for. They were now involved in a war that they did not want or did not like, but they were still caught in it. And there had to come a point where they woke up and realized, whether I like it or not, whether it's comfortable or not, whether it's convenient or not, whatever the or not is, I am in a war and I need to do something about it. I've been reading this summer a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a great theologian, German theologian, in the early part of the, of the 20th century. And uh, he grew up as a young boy at the end of World War I and as a young man was of, uh, in, in his 20s and was a pastor at the time that Hitler took over and they, World War II began. And he starts from the position of, well, he deals with it. The wonderful thing about this book is it takes you through the journey he went as a, as, a, as a man of God, and he was a man of God, sorting through what his role should be. And at first it was to basically stay out of it. And then and he eventually came to the point where he realized, this is so evil that I have to do something. And he literally became a counter-spy. He joined the, 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 the military intelligence of the Third Reich so that he could be a counter-spy against them and eventually became part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. This is the devout Christian who comes to the conclusion, I've got to do something because this is so evil that I have an obligation to do something. He went from the place of being an, a bystander, praying for what was going on, to realizing i got to do something because we're in the middle of this. And that's where the church is today. It was gripping reading this book because it made me so much aware of the time we're in right now. Of how things changed so quickly spiritually in that nation. How it went from being a Christian nation to being the foul, evil thing that it became in just a short period of time. Why? Because people didn't recognize what was going on and the church failed to be what the church should have been. Because they were conned by the enemy into thinking that they could somehow work with Hitler, they could pray for Hitler, they could somehow do things. And I'm not making any comparisons with Hitler in terms of our government. I don't mean that by me. What I'm talking about is because there were spiritual forces behind this. And so the beginning of of handling warfare, spiritual warfare, is to recognize we're in it. We didn't ask to be in it. In many ways, we're bystanders. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, you find in, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, you'll see the, the root of this is a battle between God and between Satan and God. And we're caught in the middle of this. And it's still between Satan and God. And as a, a Satan tried to rise up as Lucifer and, and become essentially, I believe, equal with the Son of God, equal with the second person of the Godhead, and for that he got kicked out of heaven and he's doing everything he can to ruin God's plans and what was important to God ever since then. And since you are so important to God, since you are so valuable to Him, you became a target to Satan. And so it begins by recognizing, and there's a point when, in a real war where, where it dawns on people, whoa, wait a minute, they're shooting real bullets at us. And I've got to do something. I can't, you know, home is just not the comfy place it always was before. I've got to now have a militaristic attitude. And whether we like it or not, that's where we are. Because if you try to remain a civilian in the war, you're going to get shot because you will not take up the armor that God's given us. And the good news we're going to learn is that we can be victorious. Not only can we be victorious, God's counting on us being victorious. It's important that we're victorious. We're not just here to survive. We're here to be victorious in this war that's going on right now because there are souls of other people. There's more at stake here than whether we're comfortable and whether we make it or not. And that's really what the war's over. In most of our cases, Satan's lost the war for you. But what he's trying to stop is what God can do through you to reach somebody else. What God can do through this church to reach somebody else. It's nothing personal. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't care enough about you to hate you. He hates Jesus. And he hates God. And he hates the kingdom of God. And what the kingdom of God stands for. And he hates what the kingdom of God wants to take back out of his hands. And that's what's involved here. And so, But the Bible gives us instructions. It tells us what God has done for us. And so the first thing that we need to understand is that we are in a war. The next thing we need to understand is who the enemy is. Because we have a very crafty enemy that tries to get us shooting at each other. And he's very successful at that. Because notice what Paul says here. He tells us, first of all, who our enemy is not. He says, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. That means it's not your mother-in-law. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your pastor. It's not your boss. It's not ultimately even ISIS. But he says, we do not wrestle. Well, first of all, it tells us there's a wrestling. There's a battle going on. And this can be Hard to discern because the war that's going on is going on in a realm that you don't see into. It's going on in a realm where you can't see the combatants. You can just feel the results of it. And and what we tend to do is we tend, because we're generally so carnal-minded, we look at things so much through our mind and look to understand things so much through our senses that we interpret what's going on in just natural terms. And some people, I'm sure most of you know better than this, but some people just say, you know, boy, this has been a year where my luck has just been terrible. I have just had the worst luck this year. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as luck. Proverbs says the curse causeless does not come. There's a reason behind everything. And there's a spiritual reason behind many things. Now, understand this. That's that's on one side. On the other side, there are a lot of people that blame everything on the devil. Things he's got nothing to do with. Sometimes it's just our own stupidity or it's our own stubbornness or disobedience. If you choose to stay out tonight, take a shower, cold water, and stand outside dripping wet in the cold night tonight, all night, and you wake up sick tomorrow, don't blame that on the devil. (laughs) A few years ago, there was a situation around here where some high school students parents of high school students, hosted a drinking party for their underage high school students. And as a result of that drinking party, there was a teenager killed out on, one, on 195 about 1 in the morning. And I heard back from the school department that some of those parents were mad at God. God had nothing to do with that. You pump alcohol in your son, at 17, 16, 15 years of age, they're going to do stupid things because you did stupid things when alcohol was pumped into you and you were older, hopefully. And they get out there playing around on 195 and get hit by a car. That's not the devil. Did that. I mean, they're behind it, the alcohol behind it, yes. And so not everything that happens to us is necessarily the devil directly behind it. But most things... He has influence in, and the problem is he's got us deceived because we're looking at things in terms of flesh and blood. Well, this went wrong. My boss doesn't like me. I got a terrible job. This situation. We looked at the we look we looked at the results of things without looking at the cause that's behind it. I remember at times before when either the children were small and they may have a sickness or a temperature and or I have a temperature or something like that and you go to the doctor and you want to you know, you take some Tylenol or something to break the fever and the doctor tells you, you know, you're coming in to see me, don't take the Tylenol. W- well, why? Because it's going to mask the symptoms. A fever is not the problem. A fever tells you there's something wrong and when they're medically trained, they see the fever and they want to know why. It's not the fever itself. The fever tells you there 's a battle going on inside you between the white corpuscles and the and the the, the germs that they 're trying to destroy, and it produces a heat which is what makes your body warmer than it normally is, so they want to know why they go to the cause not the not the symptom and when we 're trying to wrestle with the problems of life by fighting back against the people or the circumstances. We're trying to deal with the symptom of the problem, not at the cause that's behind that. And Paul's trying to open their eyes to say... Understand that what you're dealing with, this wrestling you're going through, this struggle you're going through, this discouragement that seems to come out of nowhere, the circumstances that just seem to pile up one after another, those aren't just by accident. You're wrestling against something that's going on in the spirit realm that's come to get you to do something that the devil wants you to do, and that's to quit. We'll look at what his goal is, but I can tell you ahead of time. It's to simply get you to quit. Give up. Quit. Because I notice when I'm under pressure... The temptation is to quit. Why? Because there's a voice speaking in my ear saying, Quit! You're not going to make it. It's too hard. There are too many obstacles. You're not enough. You've f- failed at this. you failed at this. You think you're the only one that hears that voice? Am I the only one who's ever heard that voice? Quit. Give up. What good is it? Why? Because he knows if you don't quit, you win. That's why Paul says to stand. I don't even tell us you go after him. Just stand. If you stand, you'll win. And we'll see why when we get there. All right. Let's look at this a little bit. So, the first thing we need to understand is that we're in a war. The second thing we understand is that the, who our enemy is, it's not, it's not the circumstances, but there is a spiritual battle that's going on. And we're going to look at that. Let's go to, um, Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Now you know the story back in Genesis. God created man, gave them dominion, in chapter 1 and then chapter 2 it says it in a different way. God gave them dominion over the earth. That means authority to rule and to reign with an assignment that they were to subdue the earth that means they were to conquer the earth they were to and they were to multiply and be fruitful and multiply and to spread and to be prosperous and then in chapter 3 of course satan comes on the scene and and he cons them into disobeying god and trying to do things their own way and and not god's way and as the result what happens spiritually is Adam took the authority that God had given him over this planet and Adam turned and gave it away, not intentionally, but he was conned into giving it away to Satan, God's archenemy. And what we're going to look at now is scriptures to show us that when you and I come on the scene, we come on the scene in a world where Satan is the God of this world. We're not on a we're not we're on a battlefield, but we're 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 behind enemy lines. When you're born again, you're dropped behind enemy lines. So we're in a foreign country, in a foreign battlefield. And many cases we don't know it. And I want to just show you from scriptures that, 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 that why bad things happen in this world, because it's in the control of Satan, not God. Where does sickness and disease come from? It doesn't come from God. There was none in the garden. There was none on the planet until Satan became the God of this world. In Luke chapter 4, is the story of Jesus. He's been filled with the Spirit and He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be, verse 2 says, to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. In those days He ate nothing and afterwards when He'd ended, He was hungry and the devil said to Him, look at this, <laughs> I just look how how bold the devil is. This is Jesus he's talking to. This is not Jesus who's, you know, this is the Son of God filled with the Spirit. And Satan comes to him, and the first words out of his mouth is, if you are the Son of God. He's trying to get tempt Jesus to doubt. Who he is. Now, if he's going to try to tempt Jesus to doubt who he is, do you think he might also try to tempt you to doubt who you are? Oh, yeah. yes, I've heard people say, Well, the devil's just talking to me all the time. Why are you listening? We'll look at this later. He's a liar. Why would you listen to somebody who knows a liar? There's no truth in Him, Jesus said. So why would we listen? If you're the Son of God. Well, He said that to some of you. You sure you're really Christian? Are you sure you're really saved? Let's talk about that a little bit. Are you sure? Let's think about that. Look at how you acted today. What kind of Christian are you? He did that with Jesus. He did that with Jesus. Don't expect him to play fair. In the old time when they had the battles out of the rules of war, they did. They had certain etiquette that they followed while they shot each other. (laughs) Those have all gone. That went out. That also went out the window with World War One because they started using weapons that they'd agreed not to use. They used gas, mustard gas, and all other kinds of gas. They didn't play fair on both sides now let's go down to verse um, notice how Jesus answered him verse 4 Jesus didn't say I am too the son of God Jesus said it's not written it is written that man shall not live by bread alone because he tempted him to turn the bread into the stone into bread Then the devil, taking him up on the top of a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I wish. You know who he's talking to there? If you go over in Colossians, and there are a number of other places, where it says, All that exists was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. That world that Satan was telling him he could give him authority over was created by Jesus before he became Jesus in Mary's womb. Satan has nerve. All this that you see, the kingdoms of this world, I will give to you. All because all authority over it's been delivered unto me. Well, how was it delivered unto him? Adam. God didn't deliver it to him. Adam delivered it to him. Now, this is called a temptation. So if Satan does then have the authority to offer Jesus... Jesus would have perceived that and this certainly would not have been a temptation. Because what we're going to see is one of the purposes for which Jesus came was to get that authority back. Right. And Satan's temptation here is to get it back by a shortcut. Instead of going to the cross, instead of defeating Satan's authority and power, Satan wanted to offer it to him. Why? Because if Jesus received it from Satan then he would be still subject to Satan's authority. Remember, he's a schemer. It's the wiles, it's the deceits of the devil. He comes and offers you what your flesh wants. He comes and offers you the easy way. He comes and offers you the tempting way. He says, if you are this, and tries to weaken you by getting doubt in there, and then once the doubt begins to be entertained, then he comes and brings you a temptation. Well, you're so weak now. I mean, what kind of Christian are you? Look at the thoughts that you had today. Those thoughts came from him, by the way. One of his favorite techniques is to give you... Improper thoughts or whatever kind of thoughts he knows your weakness is and then condemn you for having the thought that came from him. Why? He wants to weaken your sense of your standing before God because then you're vulnerable to the temptation. It's so important to understand in battle when you're strong and when you're weak. The timing in warfare is critical. In the beginning of the Revolutionary War, George Washington not, did not have a very good track record because he made some very serious blunders because the timing of his retreat in one case and the timing of his attack in one case was just terrible. And finally he began to learn as it went along a sense of timing and it was ultimately through God's grace. And that's what we do believe. If you are the Son of God and he's tempting him to do God's will, what He came to do here, but through a different means than God had ordained, by something other than obedience, which is the very thing He tempted Adam with. But this Adam, because Jesus is known as the second Adam, this Adam stood where the first Adam caved in. So the point here is, Satan must have that authority in order to tempt Jesus with it. John chapter 12. Verse 31, Jesus is now talking to his disciples, preparing them for his leaving, and he's talking about, he's talking about what's going to happen. Now this judgment of the world, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples, or all men, to myself. So here in verse 31, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world who will be cast out. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 30. Now he's in his intimate discussion with his disciples. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony? He's coming, but he can't find anything in me. He's got no hold on me. He's tried, he's tempted, but he couldn't get a hold of anything in me. Why? Because Jesus was totally given up to his Father's will there was none of Jesus' own ambition none of Jesus' own purpose none of Jesus' own concern for himself in him it was only concern for the father and concern for his disciples it was only to see his father's will carried out that way Satan couldn't get a hold of that but he calls him here the ruler of this world over in 16 verse 11 well let's look at verse 8 well let's go back verse 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come, that's the Holy Spirit, to you. And if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they don't believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me, and and of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged." Now, it talks about casting him out. It talks about judging him. It talks about overcoming him. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. I'll read a little bit of Scripture tonight, but that won't hurt us. After all, this is a Bible study. So we're here to study the Bible. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 7. Little children... Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, and justice he is righteous. He who sins, that's practice sin, that's not commit a sin, it is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, or given, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might destroy the works. So one of Jesus' purpose for coming was to destroy Satan's power and Satan's work in this earth now go with me to Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 and you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means separated from the covenant of Abraham, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven your trespasses, having, not will, having wiped out or eradicated the handwriting of requirements or charges that was against us, which were contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having... Disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Not will, but on the cross, Jesus broke the power that Satan had over man because the power was sin. The hold, the authority, the entrance that he had into your life, to move without reservation, without restriction, without limitation into your life, the authority and the power he had to do that, was the sin you committed, because your sin was a rebellion against God, and all that he is, and it was an effort to establish your own kingdom, being you and your rights, and through that seed of that sin, that opened a doorway to the God of rebellion, and because that door was open, Satan had a... It was as if you took all the doors off your house and the, and the thieves that walked down the street, living up the street, could come in whatever they wanted to. Such a beautiful day today. You know, I was home this morning. I just stayed home to study some of this and I was sitting on our deck out back and under the cover. It was probably one of the last few days I can do that. What I'd forgotten is I'd left our front door open and our back door open to let the air go through. Unfortunately, we live in a, a, a safe community where I didn't have to worry. I thought about, my goodness, that wasn't too smart because anybody could have just walked in if they wanted to. Well, there are other places you can live where you, if you did that, people will walk in. But when we were sinners, spiritually, that's where we were. There was no front door, no back door. The thief could come in whenever he wanted to and bring in whatever he wanted to because the authority, the key he had to your door was sin but on the cross Jesus paid for that sin on the cross he satisfied the judgment he satisfied the decree the verdict of the judge for your sin and in and. and, and wiped out. There's a term that's used in criminal law that after a period of time for some types of offenses, you can go down to the court. If you were found guilty, you served your time, you can go down and they can what they call expunge the record, which is what it sounds like. They wipe it out so that there's no record of you ever having been charged or convicted of that. It's gone. It's completely gone. This word eradicated means to take and not mark paid in full. It's like you take acid and pour it over the face of the promissory note and it eats up the ink so that you can't even find, if you hold it up to the light, the shadow of a record of your debt. And because it was paid for, because it was paid for, it wasn't paid... You see, God didn't forgive you by just saying, look, I'm going to be gracious and kind, and we're just going to pretend you never did that. That's what many of us did with our children. But God would no longer be righteous. It says about God, and I think it's, it's in Romans, I think it's five, it says that he might be the be just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ, because he could justify us by just looking the other way, but he would no longer be just, because he bent the rules. So what he had to do was to not only keep the rules, but because those rules demanded justice. He poured that justice, that just requirement of the law, out on Jesus on that cross, so that it was paid in full. And what, by doing that, he broke the power of sin. That's it. He broke the power of sin over all those who would come to Christ. Christ so that no longer would Satan have a key to your door to open it and pour in your life whatever he wants. The locks were changed. And a guard was put up. Angelic guards were put up to watch over you. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver them. Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those. Remember the story of, of Elijah when he wakes up one morning and his servant goes up to the top of the hill, top of the wall, and he comes down in a panic. My Lord, my God, my God, we're surrounded. And it was the Assyrian army had surrounded the city, Dothan. And he comes up the the prophet gets the sleepiness out of his eyes and gets his cup of coffee and goes up and looks out. And he says, oh, they're more with us than against us and goes back down. And the, the, the servant's saying, he needs more coffee. <laughs> no, they're more with us. Than, and so finally the prophet says, God opened their, his eyes to see what I already see by faith. the the servant's eyes were opened and he saw a host of chariots of fire circling around the outside of the Assyrian army when you came to Christ angels were assigned to watch over and protect you say how come I'm having so much trouble if if he's changed the lock and I got angels assigned to mine because the angels hearken to the word of God on your lips. They're following what you've been saying. That's right. We're going to have to end this, but look down. Where that, well, you can't go back there. In Ephesians 6, the only offensive weapon that he gives us is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When you speak the word of God, You empower your angels to use the sword of the Spirit against the principalities and powers that are trying to destroy you. But if you're speaking out unbelief and you're speaking out, oh my goodness, I can't make it. If you're speaking out all of that, you're restraining the angels God has assigned you from defending you. And you are putting into the hands of the enemy the keys to open the doors to your life. Luke ten nineteen, Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I give you authority over Satan and over all the power of the enemy, so that nothing shall in any way harm you. Say, Well, that was given to the twelve disciples. I don't find anywhere where he took it back. Other things he told the disciples we're responsible for. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why are we responsible to do the job, but we don't have the protection that they had? Why do you have to do one thing, but we're restricted from the protection and the privileges that they had? That's religion. That's religion that picks and chooses the gospel. We've been given the whole gospel. We've been given the whole gospel. And we're going to pick up here next week and learn how to fight in this battle. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight after re- spending this time in your Word together. We recognize that there are many in this room right now that undoubtedly are going through some degree of spiritual warfare. They may have come here tonight not realizing that's what it was. I ask you, Father, as you did with a prophet's servant of old, that you would open our eyes to see the real battle. Not to make things up where they're not there, but to recognize the source of what's really going on, what's really coming against us, to discourage us, to, 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 to make us feel like failures, to make us want to quit, to make us feel as if we're never going to win, we're never going to get on top. Help us to recognize that's not the Spirit of God speaking to us. And help us, Lord, to turn to your Word and be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Father, we repent and ask You to forgive us because we've been either ignorant of His devices or we've been lazy or we've just fallen prey because we've not done the things we know to do and fallen prey to His devices. Well, Father, tonight we repent of whatever that may have been. We stand up tonight and we declare that, Father, we want to learn from You, that we may fight this war, fight these battles that we may be victorious because your son has already come and he's defeated the power of the enemy. Now teach us how to make his enemies his footstool. And Father, we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.